It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the story of how successful executives made it into the boardroom. I'm Ken McCarthy, founder and managing director of BlackRock Resources, a leading global executive search firm. We help top companies attract, hire, and retain the best talent in the market. BlackRock's Into the Boardroom series is dedicated to discovering how senior executives in various industry sectors have advanced their careers. Making available to our listeners for the very first time, listen and learn how successful executives have made it to the top, the lessons they've learned, and the people they've met. I know you'll enjoy listening as much as I have. Feel free to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on our next podcast. Today, my guest is Andre Williams. Andre is the Executive Vice President of Human Resources of Accuant Corporation. Andre joined Accuant in January 2017 from Rockwell Automation, where he was the Vice President of Human Resources for Global Sales Marketing and Control Products and Solutions. Prior to Rockwell Automation, Andre held human resources roles of increasing responsibility at Joy Global, Accenture, Best Buy, Bellot Corporation, Morton International, and South African Breweries. Andre holds an MS in Labour Studies from the University of Massachusetts, a BA Honours from the University of Stellenbosch Business School in South Africa, an IPM Diploma from the Institute of Personal Management in South Africa, and a BA in Psychology and Sociology from the University of Western Cape in South Africa. Andre, welcome to Into the Boardroom. Thank you very much, Ken. I appreciate you taking the time and affording me this opportunity. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, like um, with all our guests, we like to start with your early years. So if you could tell me um, you know, where you grew up and um, you know, what was your family like, life like? Well, I was born in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, but at a young age, I was afforded the opportunity to travel and live in a few other parts of Africa. I actually started my schooling back in what was then known as Southern Rhodesia, it was still under British okay. rule back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, returned to Cape Town where I finished my schooling, including my undergraduate degree, mm-hmm. and um, proceeded to commence some postgraduate studies as well, an MBA. Mm-hmm. which uh, I completed uh, what's referred to as the honors portion of it. But um, my family life, I think, was was one of um, very caring parents. Uh, I'm an only child. And uh, my dad, my late dad, was a uh, principal, a school principal. Okay. Yeah. So education was very important. And... He stressed that. He also stressed the need to experience education outside of the classroom. That meant travel. That meant interacting with different cultures. And um, so he he planted those seeds at a very young age. My my mom, during my formative years, um, was at home and taking care of me but then subsequently went on to help support the family through uh, some work. Excellent. And did they inspire you when you were growing up? I know you mentioned how your father uh, encouraged you to travel and experience different cultures as well, but did they inspire you in a different way? 
Um, yeah, they, you know, they put a lot of emphasis on, as I said, education. I don't know that it necessarily clicked with me initially. Um, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't exactly the the best student uh, when I was at uh, with referred to as grade school here in the United States. Uh, back in uh, in the UK, uh, people know standard one through standard ten. Um, but um, you know, I got pretty close to not graduating from from school. But um, that was always something that, as I said, my my parents stressed was uh, was education, um, experiencing life, getting to truly know people, um, not judging the proverbial book by its cover. Interesting. And who or what else were early inspirations in your life, Andre? Um, growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era, I was a very strong opponent to apartheid. And people like Nelson Mandela, um, Bishop Tutu, these, these were all individuals that um, essentially put their lives on the line to um, demonstrate that we need to have a free and fair society. And um, like many of high school and um, college students growing up during that era, you ran into some conflict in the form of riots, in the form of demonstrations. So through all of that, inspiration was drawn from other individuals, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, the late Nelson Mandela in particular, who um, is, as you well know, renowned and known around the world. So he uh, he continues to be an inspiration for me. I see. And so I know you said you you felt that you weren't a great student. I'm sure that's very very wrong, but. You know, what were, what were you doing outside of class? Were you involved with sports or music or, you know, uh, maybe small businesses? I had two primary um, passions outside of uh, schoolwork. Um, I was an avid rugby player. And uh, if, you, if you look at me today, a fairly slight build... Believe it or not, uh, I had a few more pounds on me, and I was actually a tight head prop. Wow. Now, when I when I mention that to people, they they shake their heads and say, "No, no, no, that can't be." You know, you <laughs> you only you, you know you're not even 150 pounds, uh, Mr. Williams. Uh, but yes. be it as uh, you know, that that was one of the sporting activities um, I participated in. But the other activity which continues to be of interest to me is the theater. Mm. I was very involved with the theater, and that probably brought out my softest side as opposed to the rough-and-tumble uh, rugby playing. And um, I participated in a number of Shakespeare uh, productions, uh, the pinnacle of that being uh, the lead 
in uh, Romeo and Juliet. Wow. Yeah. So um, that was, as I say, sort of the pinnacle of my very early theater career in that it was a public uh, production Mm -hmm. and um, was staged, several shows staged at a very prominent uh, theater in Cape Town. Those, you know, early years of passion for, once again, people, characters, be they fictional or not, uh, you know, continues today. My wife and I are avid theater goers. I've sort of toyed around with the idea of getting involved in theater once again, but as you might very well know, it's a a very time-consuming activity. So definitely something that uh, when I move into full retirement, um, I'll probably kindle that interest again. Perfect, perfect. Excellent. And and outside of rugby and theatre, were you doing any entrepreneurial things when you were younger? You know, I wouldn't uh, consider some of the jobs that I had as being entrepreneurial by any stretch of the imagination. It was pretty much the sorts of things that um, younger adults growing up were involved in. I remember being a a mailman delivering mail during the summer with uh, with uh, in some some individual that uh, was uh, uh, part of the family and that afforded me the opportunity. But I I also spent a fair amount of time in the hospitality um, arena, mm. um, being a bartender to uh, being a a waiter, a server, uh, hosting um, huge events. Uh, so once again, it was the interaction with people. And um, I, I almost went into the hospitality arena, but uh, chose not to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and when you know you you went to college, did. Did you pick a major or, you know, how did you decide what you went, what you were going to do and what you went into? As I mentioned earlier, I was quite interested in politics. So political science was something that I thought would be a good course of study. It proved to be one, except that During my second year of political science, I got approached to consider taking a a post, a diplomatic post, once I graduated. And once again, you need to remember that in South Africa, pretty pretty much like the British system, you do a three-year degree, not a four-year degree as they do here in the United States. Um, once again, as I said, I was um, very opposed to the government, the administration of the day, and just couldn't see myself doing that. And I subsequently focused on two other majors, uh, which I was fortunate enough to make that switch. It was early on in my second year. So I uh, ended up 
graduating, I knew I wanted psychology, but I had sociology as uh, as another major. Um, as I mentioned, I didn't think myself much of a student when I was at uh, high school, but thoroughly enjoyed college, um, graduated top of the class. And I think a lot of it had to do with me undertaking studies that would interest in me versus these are the sorts of things that you need to do to prepare you to get access into university. And um, so I, I knew that psychology was a subject that uh, back then did and continues to be of interest to me. And um, I ended up uh, majoring in those two, psychology and sociology. Fantastic. I thought you mentioned that you weren't a good student. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on the environment. <laughs> of course. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your first job out of uh, college, Andre? Did you did you have leadership responsibilities early on? I know you mentioned the hospitality industry, but was there, there an additional one after that? My first job following graduation took me away from home and to what today is referred to as Namibia. Fortunately enough, I was selected for a human resources trainee program with the Anglo-American Corporation. And they did this annual scouting of individuals that they put through a very rigorous psychological testing protocol along with interviews. And as I said, I was fortunate enough to be selected. And I, I got put through a two-year training program during which time I also undertook some additional studies um, focused specifically on human resources. Um, it was my second job after the trainee program that had me shifting to a leadership role uh, where I oversaw a payroll department plus a HR generalist focusing on labor relations issues. Good. And what were some of the, the earliest leadership lessons that you learned from, you know, your bosses or your mentors? Well, it was don't micromanage. Don't make assumptions, uh, teach people how to fend for themselves versus you know, stepping in and doing it for them. The coaching and, and allowing individuals to, um, I hate to use the word fail because I, I am myself a risk taker and I believe in affording individuals the opportunity to take risks. So allow people to take risks and be available to support them, catch them if they trip and fall, help them to, uh, to get up. Those, those are some of the, the lessons that I learned at a very, very early age. And I've continued to instill those in other individuals that I've over the years managed or I've had dealings with. Um, I believe it, it, it's, it has served me well. 
fantastic. Now, you, you mentioned <clears throat> some of the the best lessons there, but were there some, I suppose, or the worst lessons that you've learned from previous bosses? Well, micromanaging is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also had a boss many years ago who was very power-driven and how it demonstrated itself were simple things like being the last person to walk into a meeting several minutes late, um, coming into a situation that might require some initial discussion. Uh, for example, in the United States, the Southern states have a, a slower way of, of, of talking, uh, people are very focused around family and what's going on in the community. And back in the days when I did a lot of labor negotiations, I would travel around the country and my boss would accompany me from time to time. And uh, being from the Midwest, he wanted to get down to business right away. And um, it was always a you know, a point of frustration for him that the minute he walked in, we couldn't get down to business versus just some talk around what the weather is like, how you're doing, uh, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So these, those are some of the, the worst things. And, and something else I also learned was um, being blind to somebody wanting to help you. And I remember one situation where I had taken some action that would have put him in a, a less than desirable position, yet he proceeded to um, chastise me for the fact that I had taken this action um, before, you know, getting his approval. So... Those are those are some lessons, and you know, I think a third one is, and I know this about myself. I, on occasion, will give somebody a little more proverbial rope than, than you know, is good for them, and and that's a little bit of the trusting piece in me. Um, I'll always be there to attempt to catch them, uh, but there have been the odd occasion when. Um, I've I've been blind to the fact that maybe somebody needed a little more help, and so I, I wish I wish I could do it all over again. Mm -hmm. But these are lessons that uh, were less than desirable, but nevertheless something that you learn from. Mm, of course, yep, absolutely. And how has your own personal leadership style evolved uh, over time? Earlier on in my career. I always felt that I needed to gather as much information as I possibly could. So wanted to get down into the weeds, get into the proverbial sandbox. And um, what I have found over time is, as I said earlier on, needing to teach people to fend for themselves. Um, and so my style is to use a 
a few buzzwords. It's very much an open door. I put a lot of emphasis on developing a relationship. Barking out orders, um, having people be scared of you will get something done, maybe a little faster, but there always tends to be some damage along the way. Um, it's, it's less desirable an approach in my opinion. So open door policy, developing people, coaching, allowing people to take risks. These are things that I've developed over the years, or should I say leadership traits that I've developed over the years, but also stepping away from the minutiae and putting trust in other individuals, providing the guidance. And I remember a few years ago, as I mentioned earlier, I was involved in labor relations. My boss approached me and he said, I'd like you to take a different role in the organization. And I said to him, yes, that sounds exciting, but I won't be the person sitting first chair negotiating and that's what I really like. And he said, well, at some point, you would be the individual or should be the individual overseeing somebody else that's doing that. Mm -hmm. And it finally clicked. And you know, I've had many a negotiation that I've had oversight or that wasn't actively involved in. <clears throat> you also mentioned uh, earlier micromanagement. I mean, how do you decide if it's time to, you know, micromanage or, as you say, you know, step back, uh, allow people to take the uh, the risk and trust them? Well, I start out allowing people the opportunity to demonstrate their capabilities, and after you know, after a keen observation after testing individuals and getting them to answer some questions or solve some, some issues, I then make a determination whether the individual is fully capable of taking on either that added responsibility or that different task and what is gonna be needed to bring them up to speed. So my, my first approach, as I said, is to give the individual leeway. Um, and it has tripped me up you know, um, a couple of times, um, but stepping in, recognizing that somebody might be stressed, recognizing that somebody might be uh, floundering somewhat in how they are responding to client requests, how they are interacting with their peers. So it really takes more than just the focus on the individual, but how, uh, how is the individual's actions impacting the team, the immediate team and potentially a larger group of individuals. Understood. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what are your thoughts on, on building company culture? 
something that is you know, spoken about uh, on a daily basis. And I still see it from time to time where in culture is something that, you know, the HR department needs to take care of that. I'm a firm believer that culture starts right at the top with the CEO of a company or the managing director of a nonprofit organization, whatever it might be. I see HR as being the facilitator in helping shape what that needs to look like. Um, firstly, by helping the executives of the organization go down the path of identifying where we are today and where we need to be tomorrow and the years sub subsequent to that. And then, you know, helping them figure out what are the steps that need to be taken to accomplish that, uh, that end goal. So um, very important. I think culture is the one thing that uh, unfortunately gets overlooked in many instances. Even the work that you do, Ken, as a recruiter, uh, you may find the ideal candidate and it may seem like the right person. But if there isn't that cultural fit, if there isn't that chemistry, that may be a short-lived relationship. Absolutely. Very, so, very true. Right. So I, I put a lot of emphasis on culture and I haven't always got it right. And it's part of what I, when I've dealt with executive recruiters, and I just uh, very recently pointed it out to, to one who is uh, running his marketing material by me as uh, to test whether it's something that would be appealing. I said, you've got everything in here except that you don't mention spending any time getting to know the client's business, getting to get a feel for the culture in the organization. So um, it, it is important. It evolves. It's not a static set of circumstances. And I think getting ahead of it is very important, having your surveys having it be a topic of discussion at the executive table, not every month, not, maybe not every quarter, maybe you know, a couple of times a year. Are we still on the course that we had set? No different than a business strategic plan. Interesting. Is there anything unusual about um, you know, your current culture? One of the things that I mentioned to my team when I took the position that I'm in, I said to them, there is one thing that I can guarantee you, and that is there will be change. There will be constant change. And we need to, as a team, figure out how we can absorb that, digest it, figure out how we can use it as something positive versus a negative. And that has been the theme for the two plus years that I've been with my current uh, employer, who interestingly enough, just went through yet another change just last week in 
that the name changed and the, the ticker symbol is also going to be changing. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's constant change and um, it is part of the, I don't think it's unique to the company that I'm with. We see it all the time. There are divestitures, there are acquisitions. Uh, there's a change either at the board level in directors, independent directors, or there's a change in the C-suite leadership. So it is, but it is something that has been magnified significantly over the two and a half years because we have seen dramatic change in uh, in this organization. Interesting. And what what do you look for when you're making bets on people to uh, to invest in? It is almost an intangible. <clears throat> Uh, call it trait substance. Uh, I call it having uh, a fire in your belly. You, you can have all the credentials that are needed, but if there isn't that level of enthusiasm, if there isn't that inquisitiveness, that going beyond what is on paper or on, on the web, inquiring about the business, throwing out suggestions on how things could potentially look differently. Um, it's that sense of, of innovation as well that, that comes into play. It, it manifests itself, as I said, in just how somebody presents themselves and some of the questions that they pose. And that's obviously at the the screening or the interviewing part of things or stage of an employee life cycle. But if I see the continuation of that, I'm a firm believer that there is a limited pot of dollars, pounds, euros for training efforts. And I would rather invest heavily in a handful of potential leaders then take the typical peanut butter approach and say, well, everybody is important. And yes, it might be a bias on my part, but one of my roles is to be constantly making sure that that pipeline is filled with potential leaders, that they get in the coaching they need, the training, the counseling, the reprimanding, whatever it might be. So how would you interview and hire and identify these individuals? I do use a behavioral-based interviewing approach, mm -hmm. create several scenarios in addition, and ask the question, well, how, how would you or how have you handled the situation in the past. It has worked very effectively. And, um, you know, there are several years ago, um, did a suite of you know, role-playing uh, in-basket exercises. Um, I'm not 
done that for a number of years now, <clears throat> you know, psychological um, profiling of, of individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do also for executive roles use a third party that would do a battery of psychological tests as well as some interviews. But I'm I have firmly held that the hiring of an individual should not revolve around what a you know a third party psychologist tells you about the individual. Um, that is just one data point for me. I think you take that plus the interviews and the responses, and you don't always get it right because things change or people put on the best act that you possibly can find. But um, it's a combination of those factors that help me determine, does this person have that, that oomph, that, that will to tackle this opportunity and take it to uh, the next level? Understood. And and finally, what career or life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes set on a uh, an executive position? Be prepared to experience some failures along the way. Don't see them as being something that puts you down, but something that you would learn from and turn what is a negative situation into something positive. And that's, as I said, let it be a lesson, learn from it and take risks because Status quo is not going to get you that next great innovation. It's not going to get you to that next level. Um, And I think that that's part of what I've attempted to do over the years uh, is to speak to the, the leadership of the organization and let them know that we, we need to have a level of risk taking, and we also need to be prepared for some individuals tripping and falling, but we need to be there to pick them up, dust them off, and set them back on track. So um, that, I think, is, is part and parcel of being a innovative environment and is something that I think um, a number of organizations seem to miss the point sometimes. Excellent. Well, Andre, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak to us today. It's been uh, it's been great, really enjoyable. Ken, thank you very much. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to share with yourself and hopefully many others, my thoughts, the steps I've taken to get to the boardroom and I've enjoyed it. And I uh, certainly hope that I can be 
a source of inspiration for others um, as they take on new and different. Yes, I'm sure. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Andre, and we shall speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to Into the Boardroom with myself, Ken McCarthy. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guests' stories as much as we did. If you want to hear more executives reveal their journey into the boardroom, log on to iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. You can also log on to blackrock-resources.com for more. We look forward to having you in the next episode.